This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So what is mindfulness? I meditated for probably two or three years before I ever got around to asking the teacher once in an interview, what exactly is mindfulness? (laughs) I, I didn't have a clue. Slow learner here. So there's lots of definitions for for mindfulness. And uh, mindfulness is the actual bedrock of this kind of meditation. Um, Shaila and I both share uh, a Burmese teacher who teaches a form of... uh, He teaches lots of things, but one of the things that he teaches is a form of... Uh, deep concentration uh, meditation. And um, that's a little bit different from mindfulness, but I can remember I was a a monk with him for a while in Burma, and I would go to to meet with him and talk about my practice. And he would tell me time and time again, without mindfulness, mindfulness is the backbone of this practice, without mindfulness, concentration is impossible. So that's a pretty, pretty big statement. I thought, what is he talking about? <laughs> I had to go back to my little meditation hut and reflect on, on that. But mindfulness is the quality of mind that's able to recognize, to see and recognize what is arising and passing away in our experience. And a lot of people talk about mindfulness as uh, the moment-to-moment awareness of the ebb and flow of mental and physical phenomena, or basically what's going on from moment to moment. Now I am feeling happy. Now I'm feeling sad. Now I'm hot. Now I'm cold. Now I'm this. Now I'm that. Now I notice the contact of my feet on the floor. Now I notice the softness of my lips. Now I notice the quality of moisture and warmth in my mouth. So one begins to... And why do we bother to do such a thing? You might ask. So the cultivation of mindfulness is how we begin to train the mind how we begin to settle the mind down, how we begin to allow ourselves to relax enough to notice what's happening, to get quiet enough so that we can actually notice what's happening. You know, we're in the rush of our busy day-to-day lives, right? And um, we hardly notice what's happening. We just go through our day and... And um, we move from one thing to another, but we're not really tracking what's happening. We're not really noticing what's happening. And it's very, it's very easy once you begin to slow down and settle down to notice that when you do take the time to see what's happening moment to moment, you also experience this quality of, of settling, this quality of being a little bit more present. You see, it's kind of like if you were, uh, if you were in your house and, and you had the radio on and Pandora was playing Yo-Yo Ma or something in the other, I happen to like Yo-Yo Ma. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, you're 
chatting on the phone and getting a sandwich and doing whatever you're doing, and you sort of hear the music in the background. That's one way of being aware of it. And another way is when you actually sit down and consciously give your attention to the music. So the experience is completely different when you do that. This quieting down, this settling down, is how (coughs) we begin to appreciate the subtleties and the nuances of the kinds of experiences that move through us from moment to moment to moment. See, when, <clears throat> when, we, when we do that, we can actually begin to notice things like, <clears throat> like I noticed this morning when I was meditating. It was like, I'm meditating, I'm sitting there, I'm being quiet, and then suddenly I'm starting to think about something, and the mind moves off of the breath, and I'm starting to think, you see? And then there was a further noticing that what I was thinking, at the moment I was thinking it, it seemed absolutely 100% real until I noticed that I was thinking. And when I noticed that I was thinking, it was just like a thought bubble had arisen and and then moved on, and it was replaced by another thought bubble that arose and moved on. So was it real? Was it not real? I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to even speculate about that. But the noticing of the thinking is what mindfulness is. It's seeing what's there without any kind of judgment or any kind of appraisal. It's a little bit like a mirror. You know, we stand in front of a mirror and the mirror reflects back what's in front of it right? It doesn't judge it. It doesn't say, wow, you look great today, or wow, you didn't get enough sleep. It just gives you a reflection. So that's one way of thinking of mindfulness. Another way of, of that mindfulness is sometimes thought about or described is <clears throat> it's remembering. So it's remembering the object of your meditation. So if the object of your meditation happens to be the breath, when the mind wanders off of the breath and you notice that the mind has wandered off of the breath, at the moment that you notice it, you you have remembered the object. Now, you notice that you're not on the object, but in fact, you've remembered the object. So that's considered the first moment of renewed mindfulness. But as we begin to cultivate mindfulness, we can see that at that moment, that's a really important moment, because that moment could be filled with all sorts of things, all sorts of reactions or, um, you know, um, uh, striving or judgments. I guess that's all part of reaction. And, and we don't necessarily notice that because in our, in our heads, in our minds, or in our assumptions, we think that we've done something wrong that we're not with the breath any longer. And so many people, and ask me how I know this, many people will rush to go back to the breath. And we've all heard the instruction, just gently come back to the breath, just gently come back to the breath. You see? Right. That, That sounds great. But when you wake up and you're not on the breath, and you have this idea that you should be on the breath, it's often like (laughs) leaping, pouncing. 
And we don't see the striving that's there when we do that. And we further don't see what that leads to. So in the cultivation of mindfulness, it's not to just... Um, it's, we see things that on multiple levels. First we see really obvious things. Then we see things that are a little bit uh, more subtle. We, we see our attitudes when we wake up and we're not on the breath any longer. You see? But with mindfulness, we can actually begin to... We can actually begin to explore the mind. We can, we can see what's going on um, in an absolutely wonderful way. And... Um, but we have to get through a set of beliefs that things are supposed to be a certain way. We have these expectations and these assumptions that things are a certain way, that they're supposed to be a certain way. You're given the instruction, follow the breath, right? Something like that. You're not following the breath, and then you wake up, and then something very significant happens at that point, but we don't see it. All we see is that we're not doing what we thought we were supposed to do. And then all of our habits of self-criticism and doubt and impatience and irritation come into play and overwhelm us. And, and we lose our mindfulness, and then we leap back to the breath. So I want to give you a little, a little, um, maybe it's a skillful means. It's something that I use in my own personal meditation. <clears throat> and that is, if you are following the breath, if you're doing Anapanasati or breath-focused meditation, rather than gently coming back to the breath, <laughs> gently chasing the breath as though that's, Possible. If it's possible to gently return to the breath, by all means do it. I'm not saying not to do that. But if you find that you honestly are not being very gentle in that process, then what I suggest that you do is nothing. Simply wait for the breath to show up again. I guarantee you, you're alive and sooner or later, and probably sooner, you will notice that you're taking another breath. And then just meet the breath. Allow the breath to come to you. So um, in the uh, Thai forest tradition, there's a, famous, there's a famous monk who's no longer alive named Ajahn Chah. Some of you have, may know of this great monk. <laughs> and he gives the, this... Uh, analogy of uh, if you want to see animals in the jungle, what you do is you go to the watering hole, right? But if you are at the watering hole and the animals are, aren't coming or they're somehow in the forest around you and you say, come, 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 come. So the animals are not going to come. It's like calling a cat cat doesn't come to you like a dog. A, a cat simply looks at you like you're crazy. But if you sit still and you're quiet and you just wait patiently, sooner or later the kitty will come up and jump on your lap and start to purr. So you can do the very same thing with the breath. You can simply wait for the breath to show up. Just be patient. And in the process of doing this, you're cultivating a quality of awareness and a quality and other qualities, qualities like patience and the ability to see what happens when you do that. You can notice what happens when you do that and you can notice what happens when you pounce. And that quality of noticing is also part of mindfulness. 
So <clears throat> mindfulness is a really powerful, powerful tool. And it's through mindfulness that we begin to cultivate um, wisdom. That wisdom begins to open up. And, and by cultivating this quality of mindfulness in a rather continuous way, it's another way of developing concentration. Because when the mind is stable enough, when the mind is continuous enough to track things for even a short period of time, the mind begins to quiet down and stabilize. And a mind that's stable is not disturbed by all of the things that go through our minds. And in that stability of mind, we're able to see things much more clearly. And that seeing of things much more clearly is the brightening of mindfulness. Do you see how lovely it is? It all sort of works together in this way. So um, there's a couple of things that I want to say. Um, This quality of mindfulness um, helps us to develop a kind of steady introspective attention. And this introspective attention is known as uh, mindfulness and clear comprehension. So the mindfulness sees what's happening and the clear comprehension understands what's happening. So the mindfulness is a steady attention to a particular experience. See? To the experience of warmth, to the experience of contact, to the experience of breath. It's a steady attention on whatever we're focusing on. And then clear comprehension is the understanding that can occur when this quality of attention is steady and established. So <clears throat> mindfulness today is bantied about in wonderful ways, and it's entered the mainstream. But the quality of mindfulness that we're developing in a meditative setting or in a meditative way is different than being careful about things, uh, than just being careful about things. So I'll give you a very sort of crude example. A burglar, burglaring someplace, can be very mindful, right? They're being very careful so they don't get caught. But there's no clear comprehension about what's actually taking place, what that leads to, and so on and so forth. You see? So this quality of mindfulness that is taught in in a meditative setting will always come... Um, will always be packaged with this clear comprehension piece. Without the clear comprehension, um, we can't really begin to uh, settle down enough to have deeper insights into what's happening. It's through this quality of mindfulness and clear comprehension that we are able to sort of access uh, deeper insights or deeper understandings into the what's going on in our life and into the nature of life. So <clears throat> taken together, these things offer us a way to get to know ourselves directly and in depth. They get to, we get to see what's going on with us. This requires a, a lot of sensitivity and a lot of patience. It doesn't happen quickly. I would like to think that it happens quickly, and I would like to be able to tell you that it happens quickly, and maybe for some people it does, but for most people it really doesn't. It's a process of continuity 
bringing your attention back over and over and over again. There's a wonderful monk, uh, American monk named Bhikkhu Bodhi, and um, he actually says this in relationship to, (laughs) he said, uh, there's two things necessary for enlightenment, but I'm going to say there's two things necessary for the cultivation of mindfulness, and that is to start and to continue over and over and over again, to start and continue. That's it. You sit down, you try to follow the breath, the mind wanders and wobbles. This is completely normal. Minds think, we feel, we have sensations. This is not a problem, as long as you see that for what it is. And then you just allow yourself to continue and start again. You go back and you do it over and over again. And it's this process of continuity that begins to create in, within us a, um, a new way of responding to experience. So <clears throat> some of you know that I teach a compassion cultivation training up at Stanford. And <clears throat> what, what the neuroscientists are looking at is what happens, if anything, to the brain, to the human brain, when people incline their minds in, in this kind of a direction. Does anything happen? And literally new neural synapses are created, new neural networks are created, and eventually a new kind of a default response to life and to to the circumstances of life begins to be cultivated. And so we then respond to things in a way that's a little bit different or a lot different depending on how, how much we, we engage in the process um, than if we're just in this constant fight, flight, or freeze mode, this reactive mode, the ancient limbic brain, the amygdala, where <clears throat> all we're doing is reacting surviving, or whatever. So, <clears throat> so as we cultivate mindfulness, how do we do that? And um, some of the focuses are basically on the senses and sensations of the body. This is a really good way to do it. And um, <clears throat> even when we're using the breath as the focus of our meditation, or the object of our meditation, I should say, um, we, can, we can notice the sensations of the movement of the breath in the body. Now, this is one way of looking at the breath, or one way of working with the breath. There are other ways of doing it, but for the purposes of what I'm trying to say here, the body is our friend. And most of us just don't pay attention to the body as much as we should, especially when we're fairly new to meditation. We, we, well, maybe that's not true. Some of us are like me, they're stuck in their head and they have to learn that there's something below your chin. <clears throat> and <clears throat> that is the body. The body will signal us about what's going on. The body will let you know when you are calm, the body will let you know when you are not calm, when you're happy, when you're sad, when you're frightened, when you're peaceful, when you feel safe. The body will do this. The mind, we can fool ourselves in the mind, but the body will always be your friend. So you can always return to the body. You can track the sensations in your body. Now, this is really important because um, <clears throat> it helps us to identify certain experiences that we all have. And <clears throat> rather than being 
sort of overwhelmed by those experiences or identified with those experiences, we can just recognize them for what they are. So we can recognize thinking, we can recognize emotions, we can recognize beautiful qualities like compassion, generosity, spaciousness. We can notice what those things feel like when they're present. And we can notice the opposites, fear, anger, jealousy, enmity, all of those things, they all have a different qualitative felt sense to them, right? Do you agree? (laughs) And (laughs) instead of fighting with our experience, if we allow our attention to rest on what's going on in the body, and not fight it, if we can befriend, in a way, what's occurring, our mindfulness can get brighter and the understanding, the clear comprehension that comes along with that can also begin to deepen and develop and uh, open up for us. So um, this kind of mental awareness learns psychologically psychological behaviors such as generosity, trust, or aversion and willfulness. These things are present in all of us. And what a lot of people do is when things come up that they think shouldn't be there or they don't like, they deny it or push it away. And in the process of denying and pushing it away, they lose their mindfulness. They don't actually see that this aversion has arisen, you see? Or they don't see that greed has arisen, or they don't see that ignorance, that they just don't see what's going on. Of course, if you're ignorant, you don't see what's going on. (laughs) That one's a little bit harder. But you can begin to recognize these qualities, and at a certain point, you can actually begin to recognize when you're in la-la land, when you're just sort of lost, you see? So I want to go back to the very beginning where I said, um, when the mind drifts off the breath and you're thinking about something or you're planning something or you're rehashing a, a memory or something, during that time, that during that particular period, you're just lost. That's all there is to it. You're wandering, you're daydreaming. And you don't even know you're daydreaming because this daydream is real. And so you think for a moment or two or three or however long it lasts that that's real. You see? You can remember some argument you had back in high school with your best friend. And for the moment that you're remembering it, that's completely real, you see? But once you recognize what's happening, then in that moment, you're free. And to recognize the difference between being lost and being aware is a moment of really important mindfulness. And this is how you can use the body, you see? So that brings me to um, what I wanted to talk about tonight, um, which is um, how you use mindfulness in order to, to follow the natural movement towards getting unstuck when we are in situations that sort of take us down the rabbit hole. Do you you know what I mean by going down the rabbit hole? Yeah, I mean, everybody knows what this experience is. This is part of our common shared humanity. We all go down the rabbit hole. So when you think about your own life experience, you notice that um, you're a mixture of things. We're all a mixture of things. 
where one moment we're aggressive and assertive and pushy, and the next moment we're filled with loving kindness and goodwill and patience, and, and they both exist within us all the time. Sometimes we're tender-hearted, sometimes we're hard-hearted, sometimes we're friendly, sometimes we don't give a damn. You see? Sometimes we're forgiving and sometimes we're petty. We just will not let go. We're like dogs with a bone and we just won't let go of what's happening. So <clears throat> there's no fixed or static identity that we can hold on to. We're just this flow of energy in a way. Things ebb and flow through us constantly. And uh, this is kind of like a, uh, like a dynamic life energy that's underneath all of our views and our opinions and our reactions of like and dislike. That's just what's going on, and it's going on for all of us. So uh, the question is, can we learn how to relax and not fight this flow? not resist it, just let it flow through us, but not be caught by it, not, be, not have it be so sticky that it catches us every time, and before we know it, boom, we're lost again. That's a, that's a question worth reflecting on. So uh, we find that... Um, even when we begin to acknowledge to ourselves that this flow of energy, this constant flux of energy that we're beginning to notice is actually what our real experience is, most of us don't have a very high tolerance level for that. It's really hard for us to be there. We want things to be predictable and stable and therefore what we might consider safe. But the reality of our experience is that it's never like that. You know, just think about your own day. You know, one moment you're absolutely fine, and the next moment a thought pops into your mind and you're heated up, or you're frightened, or you're anxious, or you're this or you're that. And then that will pass, and the next moment something else will come along. And this is just part of our experience. So what I want to do is I want to go back to what I shared about my own meditation this morning. And I was noticing how each of these experiences that were flowing through my mind were appearing momentarily as solid and real. You see? And the moment I recognized just this idea that it was solid and real, poof. It wasn't that what I was thinking of didn't have any importance. It's just that it wasn't, it didn't have the solidity or the reality that I was assigning to it in the moment and that we all assign to, the, our, to these kinds of things in the moment. So what happens is that we literally get seduced by our personal preferences. We want things to be a certain way. That's it. And, and when our experience doesn't map to what we want or expect or think should, should be happening, most often people will report it takes a while to begin to even recognize this, a quality of resisting. We're resisting what is actually happening in the moment. You see? Ah, this is the way things are right now. Right now, this is the way things are. <laughs> then the next moment, this is the way things are. But in the moment, we're just pushing against and resisting, and we're trying to manipulate our experience. And in a very important way that's very easy to miss, what we're doing is we're <clears throat> literally 
abandoning ourselves. We're denying our actual experience and we're trying to impose our preferences onto our experience and we're completely lost. In the moment that that's happening, we are completely lost. We're down, we're down the rabbit hole and we don't even see it. And it happens to everyone. It's completely normal. Now, the beautiful thing about mindfulness is that when you begin to see this, rather than fighting it, you don't have to fight it. It's wonderful. Let it happen. You see? And when you can see it, it's mindfulness that sees what's happening. We can't learn what our what is our blockages are, what are our obscurations to clear insight and clear understanding until we see what's, what, what we're not seeing. You see? It's a little bit like a person who has a, a, a substance abuse problem. Maybe this isn't a good example, but <clears throat> it said that a person sort of has to, boom, hit the bottom before they acknowledge, oh, I've got a problem, I need to do something. And then they make some sort of, something turns in them. And, and there's at least the intention to, to try to address this. And it's the very same thing. Until we can see what we're resisting, it's like a boogeyman. It has total power over us. Because this is the place where we get hooked. And, and I want to come back again to the importance of tracking with your body, noticing what's actually happening with your body. Because that particular moment will have a qualitative somatic or sensory experience associated with it. So they've done studies. This is a wonderful study that I love as a meditator because it validates meditation. (laughs) But they've done studies where they've taken um, groups of people, a group of people who are meditators and then a control group of non-meditators, and um, they put them in a room and uh, there is, is, I don't know how they set the experiment up, but in any event, what the bottom line is, what they tell all the participants, both groups, that they're going to um, give them a shock, an electric shock. And, um, and that's it. They tell them that they're going to give them a shock, right? And then they actually give them a mild shock, not a terribly painful shock. And they've done this a number of times in different settings, and the only people who could take the shock and literally not immediately default to some narrative about the horrible thing that was going to happen or how much it was going to hurt or something were the meditators. They could notice the shock as a a feeling of a a sensory experience that they could actually track with mindfulness to to just notice the sensations. So the mind was stable enough not to be derailed by discomfort. But for the non-meditators, the only people that could do this were the meditators, the non-meditators, even when they were told it would be a mild shock and it wasn't going to be anything to, <laughs> to be concerned about, their minds immediately defaulted to narrative about the shock. How could they avoid the shock and not be, how could they not be made uncomfortable? And so on and so forth. And so <clears throat> this ability to hold the mind onto that which might be uncomfortable to the point where you can allow it to simply 
have its moment to arise and pass away is how we begin to cultivate this ability to not be pulled in one direction or another or 10,000 directions by every passing sensation, every passing emotion, every passing thought. So in the cultivation of compassion, for instance, compassion is always, always a response to suffering. That's what compassion is. It's, a, it's the heart's natural response to the awareness and the um, experience of suffering in someone else or in yourself in the wish to alleviate that suffering. But it's always a response to suffering. You see, Now, <clears throat> in order to cultivate real compassion, maybe that's not fair, because all compassion is real, but in order to cultivate this quality of compassion, uh, one has to be able to see suffering and to not deny the suffering, to not turn away from it. And most people do not want to be with suffering. Who wants to be with suffering, right? But to the degree that we cannot be with that which we find uncomfortable, to that degree we can't access this quality of compassion. Something else will begin to happen. And it's the very same thing that happens with mindfulness. It's because of mindfulness that we can develop compassion. This is how mindfulness is used in the service of compassion. It's to see and to recognize suffering and not to just immediately default into some sort of a reactive reactivity about the suffering that, that we're aware of, you see? And so over time and through continuous practice, we begin to cultivate the ability to be with things that are more and more problematic for us. So we might begin by noticing how we suffer when we're in a coming down Highway 85 at five o'clock like I did. Yeah. Bumper to bumper, bumper to bumper. And it was like, oh, how do people do this night after night after night? So we begin to cultivate this quality of noticing this is a moment of discomfort. This is a moment of suffering in a way. To the degree that I'm resisting the reality of being stuck in a traffic jam, I'm suffering. You see? Now, that's one kind of suffering. You know, another kind of suffering is I go to the doctor and the doctor tells me I'm really sorry (coughs) that I have to tell you that you've got a terminal illness and you have a year to live. That's a different kind of suffering. And so if if we start with going to the biggest thing in the room, biggest thing in our lives, so to speak, it's not likely that we're going to be able to cultivate this quality with any degree of equanimity because it's so big that our mind won't be stable enough to stay with the truth of it. So you begin with things that will allow you to see, oh, this is uncomfortable. This is not what I want. I do not like this. I want it to be otherwise. So you start with what one of my colleagues calls a five-pound weight. You don't have to pick up a 50-pound weight in the very beginning. You pick up a five-pound weight, and then you, you cultivate it. It's like meditation. You cultivate mindfulness through continuous practice. You just practice. And it doesn't mean that you have to practice for hours at a time or you go off on long retreats. You can practice mindfulness through simply noticing your experience through simply noticing on the freeway at five o'clock on Highway 85 that you are uptight. That's it. That's a moment of mindfulness. And then you recognize, oh, I get this. You see? And when you recognize that, ah, here's a moment of mindfulness, here's a moment of mindfulness, here's a moment of mindfulness, here's, you can begin to connect the dots. Now you know what mindfulness feels like.
So, <clears throat> so <clears throat> when we begin to cultivate this quality, um, we we can uh, begin to um, uh, we begin to notice that the noticing sort of opens up a space. There's there's the noticing is like a moment of of stability of quietness in a way and then we can recognize oh this is what that feels like you see <clears throat> so <clears throat> when when you meditate i might suggest <clears throat> pay attention to the degree that it's possible for you to do this and you can train yourself to do this to just notice the, sh- <clears throat> the sort of, I don't know what else, how else to refer to it, but this shifting flow of energy. Simply notice these different qualities, and it could be something as simple to get to, to recognize as something as simple as when you take an in-breath and you feel your lungs fill and your chest expand, you see, even though you might be breathing shallowly and you don't really think about it that way, if you slow down enough and if you notice that, you'll notice that you, uh, like a quality of, of an inhalation is this experience of expansion or space. And then you notice, oh, this is, this is what spaciousness feels like. And then when you exhale this quality of just releasing, of letting go. This is what letting go feels like. Letting go feels like falling asleep. You know, you're not holding on anymore. You just let go. Something lets go. You don't necessarily do it consciously, but something lets go. And the next thing, the next moment you're asleep. You see? So if you could actually notice that moment and consciously go to sleep, that would be really refined mindfulness. But you can notice it on the out-breath, you see? So when you hear teachers say, just let go, I used to hear my teacher say, just let go, let go. I I thought to myself, if they don't stop telling me to let go... (laughs) I'm going to go nuts. If I knew how to let go, do you think I would continue suffering? (laughs) I don't know how to let go. But you can use your body. Let your body be a friend. And this will allow you to recognize this letting go quality. Now, one of the things that's important about noticing these qualities is that in the quality of spaciousness and also letting go, but especially in that quality of spaciousness, what we find challenging and difficult is much easier to handle than when we're all contracted and closed and uptight. You see? So cultivating a quality of spaciousness in our meditation allows us to be with the challenges that are part and parcel of being a human being. It allows us to be with, the, with that without it being so overwhelming that we just immediately go into a narrative about it. And the narrative has who at the center? Who's the star of your narrative? Yes, we are. We're the star of our narrative. So, so do you begin to, I hope I'm sort of creating a picture where you can begin to see how all these things actually support one another, they nourish and support one another, and they can sustain us in our practice. So, <clears throat> when we can actually meet that moment where we're about to go down the rabbit hole, where we can pause, we can actually see, oh, here comes the narrative. We can begin to recognize the story that we're telling ourselves. It's not that that's in any way not normal. It's just like a daydream. 
it takes us off, and when, when we get lost in the narrative, we're gone. Our mindfulness for that moment, or for those moments, is, is gone. You see? And that's how we end up down the rabbit hole. So, <clears throat> um, this is a place that um, teachers like Pema Chodron, I love Pema Chodron, she's a wonderful teacher. She, I think she'll refer to this place as, as kind of the place where you get hooked, is where we get hooked. And, and where we get hooked is where we lose our mindfulness. So um, when, we be, when we begin to, to, instead of fighting this, when we begin to just learn to recognize it, when we begin to um, pause and recognize that we're about to be hooked or that we're hooked, we are already interrupting the momentum of an old habit, which is that habit of just defaulting to reactivity. You see? When you begin to cultivate compassion as a quality, you're interrupting the momentum of the reactivity of your life experience or your mental habits that obscures you having access to the quality of compassion. And you begin to literally create new neural pathways in the brain. Now, does the brain give rise to compassion or does the mind give rise to what affects the brain, to what the brain is doing? We won't try to answer that question tonight, but it's a question worth, worth asking. So... It really takes courage and uh, resolve and determination as well as uh, curiosity to stay open to this energy of being in the place where you get hooked because it's not very comfortable. And so as we begin to work with that place, you'll see that it's a little bit like, um, again, I... I'm, I'm drawing from teachings from Pema Chodron, but it's a little bit like you're in a detox zone. We're not used to being with what our problem is. And so when we begin to settle down with our problem, it's, it's, it doesn't just disappear. You know, it's like we've got a lot of baggage that we're dealing with. And so... It's a little bit like going through a detox zone. So that's why I really encourage that you start with what you can handle. You see, if we were doing loving kindness and we're beginning to move through categories and then we get to the category of the difficult person, you know, my advice and instruction would not be to go to the most difficult person in your life, that the mere thought of them sets you off on a rage. You just go to someone who's mildly irritating, and you, and you work from there. So <clears throat> this, this takes a lot of practice and a lot of patience and a lot of kindness. And... Um, but it's a practice that's quite worthwhile doing, and it will begin to have um, a quality of transformation that you'll begin to notice in your life if you're willing to be continuous with it. And um, I want to say... uh, because I'm new to this group and I and I only know one or two or three of you in the room. And so I don't know how you meditate or what your meditation practices are like, but um, if, if you do do retreats, that's wonderful. That's a great way to, to 
begin to cultivate and recognize this quality of mindfulness. But if you don't go on retreats and you're doing a kind of daily life practice, and maybe you meditate every day for a while, or maybe you meditate every few days or every few weeks or whatever it is that you do, um, you don't have to turn this into a big, heavy um, task, a to-do thing. You know, you've got it on your to-do list. Just the most important thing in order to cultivate a habit is the continuity. So one of the things that I tell my compassion students is that it's more important that they do the meditations that we're giving them on a daily basis, if they can do it on a daily basis, for five minutes a day for a week rather than to sit down on Saturday or Sunday and meditate for 35 minutes. It's the it's the continuity of, of inclining the mind in that way that begins to have an influence in the brain. And this, is, this has been proven, um, uh, or this proven, I guess it's been proven. <laughs> That's a funny thing to say. But whether you're meditating or learning how to play an instrument, a musical instrument, uh, just as an example, to practice for three hours on the weekend is not as effective as if you practice for 45 minutes or a half an hour every day during the week. That's how you begin to get mastery from an instrument. That's how you would learn a new language, and that's how you would begin to cultivate this quality of mindfulness. So, the, so just this practice, and you can do it in very simple ways. There's mindfulness on the go. You just notice, okay, you know, I like this, I don't like that. When you notice that, consciously noticing with, whether you like something, that's a moment of mindfulness. You see, the world and life will present you with many opportunities to cultivate this quality. And then when you do sit down to meditate, you'll take those experiences into the meditation with you and they'll begin to allow you to relax more and more into the meditation. And then the mindfulness can be cultivated in that more quiet way. You begin to then... And then what happens in the meditation, you can see bears out in your daily life. And then pretty soon, the difference between formal meditation, sitting on the cushion, and driving down Highway 85 at 5 o'clock in the night, it's not really different, you see? I mean, maybe you're not going to have tremendous insights, but just the recognition of being stuck, seeing your impatience, seeing how much you hate that, seeing aversion, this is how you, how you cultivate clear comprehension. So <clears throat> mindfulness recognized stuck in traffic. Clear comprehension recognizes, I hate this. I'm impatient. I want it to be otherwise. And the two of them together are what lead to freedom. So it's a great pleasure and honor to be invited to come and talk to your group from time to time. And I hope that this has been useful for you. Um, I didn't leave enough time for questions and answers, so I'm quite willing to hang out a little bit if anybody has a question. And um, I just want to say that when we all come together like this, or whenever you come together, and, and especially when you do this as a group and you practice the Dhamma, when you practice like this, you meditate and you listen to these teachings, uh, something wonderful happens and there's a field of um, goodness that's created. And um, you can mindfully recognize that quality of goodness. If you were here on Tuesday night, um, you might have heard uh, Ming refer to that noticing 
uh, you can notice a quality of joy, a gratitude, when you realize, oh, this is something good. I can appreciate this. And then I, I tell you to delight in that and to take it forth and share it with your loved ones and with your colleagues, and the world will be a better place. God knows we need as much good will and sensibility in the world as we can get these days. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.